wondered why the Bible uses so many different names for Jesus, so many different ways to describe him, so many different vantage points. When we come to the Gospel of John, as we studied last Sunday, the Gospel of John takes a unique vantage point that the first three Gospels of your New Testament do not. Whereas the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the Synoptic Gospels by theologians and scholars, meaning it's a synopsis, it's a summary, it's kind of a detailed account of every part of Jesus' life and ministry, John is more theological and more intentional. John is given the vantage point not just of history, but of theology and of heaven. So much so that he is introducing Jesus to some of us for, in, a, in a way and in a light that perhaps we haven't seen him before. And we're familiar with this. We're familiar with how John is going to introduce Jesus here in his gospel. Because whenever we introduce ourselves to others, have you ever noticed it's almost the same three questions? Like whenever you're meeting someone for the first time and you're trying to get conversation going, you're trying to connect, you're trying to get to know the other person, these are the first three introductory questions. First, what's your name? That's the first question almost every time. What's your name? What do you do? And where are you from? What's your name? What do you do? And where are you from? John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, introduces Jesus answering all three of those questions. But it is distinct. It's unique because, for example, the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke address the question of what is his name, the name is Jesus, son of Joseph. Matthew, Mark, and Luke answer the question, what does he do? Well, he's a carpenter's son. Matthew, Mark, and Luke answer the question, where is he from? Well, he's from Nazareth. When we come to the Gospel of John, John answers the question a little bit differently. What is Jesus' name? God. What does Jesus do? He creates universes. Where is Jesus from? From all eternity. When we come to Jesus in the Gospel of John, not only are we introduced to Jesus from a different vantage point, but we are a witness to this simple, powerful truth that most global leaders, most kings and emperors had their peak of influence and power at the moment of their life and their death. For example, Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar, Napoleon. These men had influence and impact during their life and at their death. Of course, I'm aware of the spiritual impact of Christ's ministry, which is still shaping and changing the world. But historically, it is interesting that Jesus' impact did not diminish at his life. No, it would seem even at Pentecost, after his resurrection, after his ascension, there's only 120 followers of Jesus there. We have more people in church than they did right at the first Pentecost. No, what's amazing is when we come to the Gospel of John, when we turn through the New Testament, they truly understood Jesus to be God. You see, Jesus' influence and impact did not diminish the longer we get from his life. No, his influence, his impact increases 
In fact, he had greater global impact 50 years after his life, as we're going to see in these letters. Churches all over Asia Minor, Africa, Italy, reaching further west, worshiping Jesus as God, just three decades afterwards. For example, you could turn to the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2, verse 6 says this, Jesus is the very form or very nature of God. No hesitations, no qualifications. Colossians 2, verse 9 says this, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Also in the book of Titus, where you have the Apostle Paul teaching and instructing one of his pastors, one of his protégés, he says this, Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. Hebrews 1.3 says this, written about 67 AD, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, if you turn on television every once in a while, you watch specifically like Biography or the History Channel, or perhaps you turn to a major news publication, what a lot of scholars that work in liberal arts colleges like to say is that there was a church council that made Jesus God. That 300 years after Jesus' life, and I'm sure he was a nice man, I'm sure he was a good teacher, and I'm sure he was able to do good deeds, but it was really a church council 300 years later that made Jesus go from being a good man and the son of a carpenter into being God, creator, and sustainer of the universe. When we come to Philippians, Colossians, Titus, or Hebrews, and especially the Gospel of John, we learn that that is just not the case. John can't even get a few breaths out without proclaiming the divinity of Christ. Once again, just from a historical footnote, people marvel at Christ. People marvel at his impact. You can't make up this story. Who would have ever thought that the son of a Jewish carpenter living in a small little Middle Eastern country, the, poor, the son of two poor Jewish peasants, would become the most influential person who's ever drawn breath on planet Earth? Now, you might say, well, this is a pastor and a preacher at a church saying this. Okay. Let's look at a Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan. He says this. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history, in history for almost 20 centuries. The dominant figure in history for 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing a trace of Jesus' name, how much would be left? As if to say, not very much. Now, whether it's a Yale historian or whether it's a famous writer like H.G. Wells, H.G. Wells, he makes this confession and he admits he's not a Christian. He says this, an historian like myself who doesn't call himself a Christian finds the picture of history centering irresistibly around the life and the character of this most significant man, Jesus Christ. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is this. What did he leave to grow? 
Did he inspire men to think along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? H.G. Wells says, by this standard, Jesus stands first in all of history. His impact has been global. His impact has shaped the world. There is no person alive where there's been more books written about him, more paintings painted of him, more libraries, more schools. I mean, think of it. Today's date is based on when Jesus lived. In fact, at our moment of passing into the next life, where they put Chris Durkin into the grave and they have a tombstone there, they're going to say, my years of life are all dependent and based on when Jesus was alive. Our calendar's based on him. Our language is shaped by him. How many of us have names directly rooted from Scripture, right? His book is the best-selling book of all time, and his name is repeated over and over and over and over again by everyone and not in worship. I mean, have you ever wondered why when people stub their toes, all of a sudden they're yelling the name of Jesus? When they're on the parkway and they might be listening to some awful music, feeling and thinking not so holy things. Jesus, Jesus' name becomes a curse word. Do you ever pause and step back and wonder and awe at the influence of Christ? No, John does, but John doesn't marvel at the wonder of the historical influence of Christ only. No, he has a theological truth that he's going to proclaim. So even as we marvel at Christ of history, I want us to marvel at the Christ of creation and the Christ of salvation, because that's John's passion. What we're going to see here is John is going to give a creation account. Here in the Gospel of John, you don't see, as we talked about last week, too many of the things that surround Christ's birth, like we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What we see here is John is going all the way back to the beginning and showing just how big our Jesus is. Verse 1, chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Notice these first three words, church. In the beginning. Have we heard that before? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and now listen to this, and the Word, what does it say, church? Was God. In the beginning. What we're going to do in today's study is we're going to look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, look at the beginning of your entire Bible in the book of Genesis, and then jump to the end of the Gospel of John where this profound truth takes root in someone's heart. In the beginning was the Word. Now, when you hear Word, you might think, all right, this is a unique way to introduce Jesus. Why not just mention His name? Well, we believe because John is trying to make a connection to Old Testament teaching and prophecy, but also build a bridge to Hellenistic thought and thinking. For example, if you were to study the Old Testament and you were to underline a very important phrase, you would see this phrase over and over and over again, all the way throughout the Old Testament. It's this, and the word of the Lord came to fill in the blank, prophet, priest, king, peasant, pagan, the word of the Lord came. It was the word of the Lord that called Abraham to uh, be blessed and to be the beginning of a great nation. It was the word of the Lord that made the covenants with David 
and with Abraham and with Noah. It was the word of the Lord that would speak in the burning bush to Moses and lead God's people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It would be the word of the Lord that gave the law of the Lord in the Ten Commandments and in the Torah. It would be the word of the Lord that came to the prophets prophesying a Messiah to come and promising God's faithfulness. John is saying so powerfully and so succinctly, that word has come and that word was always there. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the word. In fact, even deeper, Jesus is the word. Every single time the word came to someone, it was Jesus. But it doesn't even begin there. It begins in creation. Jesus is the word, which also is a bridge to some of the Greek Hellenistic thinkers of that day and age. Of course, those who were Gentiles, those who were in Rome or those who were in Greece or those who were subscribing to some kind of pantheon of pagan gods, there was this amazing outset of Aristotelian thinking, Socratic thinking. And one of their concepts that still today has influence and shapes how some people think in philosophy and other disciplines like that is logos. Can everyone say logos? Logos means word. The Greek word here for word is logos. What John is trying to do is he's trying to build a bridge to the minds and the hearts of the Gentiles, the Hellenistic Greek thinkers, to say, you believe in some kind of immaterial force. Ironically, if you were to take that ideology and line it up with atheism today, it's almost similar. You believe in some kind of impersonal force. For example, like atheism submits this. All matter came from something that's not matter. All matter came from something that's not matter, that the universe did have a beginning. It's amazing that scientists agree across the board. The universe is not eternal. It did have a beginning. But it all came from something that was not matter. All materials came from something immaterial. All effects came from some unknown cause. So whether it is the thinking of Aristotle, Plato, or Socrates that say, all right, there's this logos, this structure, this impersonal force. I mean, it almost doesn't sound like Aristotle. It sounds like Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, right? Impersonal force giving structure and it helps us explain the scientific systems of the universe. John is saying this, that immaterial force, that cause from which every effect has sprung from, that beginning is none other than the Word of God who is Jesus Christ. Astounding. It's remarkable. It's remarkable what happens in just a couple words in your Bible. Here in Scripture, we have a declaration of a creating, sustaining, cosmic-shaping Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And now, the Word was with God. We're going to have to think a little deeply this morning. The Word was with God, so it seems like the Word, as we will see, was God, but also the Word was with God. So, we would see and we would submit 
which is in line with the rest of the New Testament's teaching, is that both Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal. All God, yet distinct. They're not modes of God. They're not emanations of God. They're each God, three and one. So think of it less as one plus one plus one equals three, and more one times one times one equals what? One. They're all each unique, distinct, and yet fully and forever God. Now, what's so interesting about the Greek here is that the actual word for the word was with God is, ready, everybody ready? Ready to learn some Greek? You excited? Prostantheon. Let's try it together. Ready? Say it together. Prostantheon. Very good. I am impressed. It means the word was with God, but what it's trying to do is to speak, not necessarily proximity, but intimacy. It's not to say, all right, well, God the Father was here on earth creating everything, and then Jesus was in some far off, distant, detached universe. No, the actual wooden translation is the word was face to face with God. So when we study through John chapter 1, we're going to see the Bible says the word was made flesh. God became human. God took on our flesh. Why? God was face to face with the word, and then Jesus, the word of God, took on flesh. Why? So he could be face to face with us. So he could reveal the glory of God in a way that we could understand. Um, I was driving into Freehold the other day, and as I was driving into Freehold, I think it was Friday night, the sunset was immaculate. I don't know if you remember it on Friday night, but the sun was absolutely massive. And I had all four kids in the back. And of course, I confess this, this was not my proudest moment of being a dad. I said, hey guys, look at the sun. And they're all like, oh, dad, it's too bright. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that something wants to look at the sun and yet it's just too hot? It's too glorious. Our eyes can't handle it. The word that was with God in the beginning, the word that became flesh, left seeing God face to face so he could be face to face with us and we could know exactly who God is. Colossians says he's the visible image of the invisible God. The word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word, this is a battleground verse right here, church, the word was God. I don't know if you've ever had any interesting conversations with people that deny or doubt Jesus' divinity. Perhaps even some of those people that ride bikes and show up on your doorstep talking about how they are Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will say, well, no, 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 no. This, this verse doesn't say Jesus was God. It says Jesus was a God. Once again, the Greek is very helpful. Because if we were actually to study the clear intent it's not only the word was God, but the Greek actually says God was the word. Right in the beginning of the gospel of John is a proclamation of the divinity of Christ. That he is not only God the son, he is the son of God. And we see this throughout scripture. In scripture, both God and Jesus share the same names. They both refer to themselves as shepherd, they both refer to themselves as judge. They're both referred to as the Holy One, the Redeemer, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. There's one time in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, which we'll get to, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. This was in front of a lot of scribes 
and Pharisees. What did they want to do when Jesus used that name and that title for himself? He wasn't just talking about how he was pre-existent before Abraham. He was what? Using the name of God for himself, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because Jesus was using the name that was reserved for God and only for God for himself. It continues. In Scripture, prayer finds its power in Jesus' name. In Scripture, salvation is found only in Jesus' name. In Scripture, Jesus demonstrates power over creation, power over demons, power over death itself. In Scripture, Jesus gladly accepts the worship of others. I encourage anyone to find a place where an apostle, a priest, or a prophet accepts the worship of others. I encourage you to find an angel from heaven, a mighty messenger and warrior of God, accepting worship from people. No one does it. Why? They're not God. It is the worst kind of heresy. It's the worst kind of sacrilege. And Jesus gladly accepts the worship of others because he is, in fact, God. In Scripture, listen to this, Jesus does the works that only God can do. Jesus creates the world, sustains the world, forgives our sins. He raises the dead. He even raises himself from death. And this is so crucial and important. Jesus says this, he is the one who determines who goes to heaven and who goes to hell forever. All right, so in our culture, there's a certain ideology, not only that the church made Jesus to be God, but there's a certain ideology that says, well, he's just a good guy. He's just a good teacher. So C.S. Lewis gives us a very helpful paradigm, and maybe you've heard it before, that when we hear the testimony of Jesus himself, and the testimony of the early church, what do we hear? A proclamation of Jesus, yes, as a man, a real man, a real human. He knew our struggles. He was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. He was truly alive in time and space, but also God. Okay, so C.S. Lewis says, with all of these testimonies in Scripture, what do we do with Jesus? What do you do with the guy claiming to be God on earth? You have three options. The first one is Jesus was a raving lunatic. I mean, who walks around claiming to be God? I mean, obviously, what, what would you do if I started walking around claiming to be God? I hope you pray for me, and then I hope you send me away somewhere far, far away so I can get some psychological help. Either he's a lunatic, or he is the best liar the world has ever seen. And all of this, all of history... All these churches, billions of Christians, including those who have died for him, deceived. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's what he says he is, and he's Lord. None of those three options. None of those three options are Jesus was just a good teacher. Jesus was just a good man. What do we do with the claims of Scripture and the claims of Christ himself? As we see here in verse 2, all eyes back on the Bible, it continues. If that weren't enough, John continues talking about the majesty of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, listen, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, what does it say, church? Was life. 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What I'm going to ask you to do is to turn to the beginning of your Bible now. Turn to the beginning of your Bible and try to keep fresh in your mind what you just heard at the beginning of John's Gospel. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And what we'll see here is John's being intentional to communicate that Jesus is not only an agent of creation, but he is the source of new life and new creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is how your Bible begins. The same words and a lot of the same imagery. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, okay, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What you're going to see here is God the Father creating, God the Spirit hovering, and then God speaking, and that speaking creating agent is none other than Christ. The Trinity is here at the beginning of your Bible. We see God created the heavens and the earth. We see the Spirit of God in verse 2 hovering over the face of the waters. Listen to this. I hope this is a paradigm change if you've never heard this before. Verse 3, and God said, said, God spoke. What did he say? Let there be light, and there was light. So the testimony of the New Testament, so subtle yet so powerful, is that that speaking word, that speaking agent, and it, when it says that God said, that agent which God used to create the world is none other than Christ. God the Father, God the Spirit, and the Word of God, Christ, creating everything, and then it's not by accident. What's the first words that God says? Let there be what? How did Jesus describe himself? I am the what? How does John, the beginning of John, describe Jesus? He is light in our darkness. So yes, clearly Genesis is telling the story of creation. Oh, now when we come after the fall, after the covenants, after the rise and the fall of many kingdoms, including Israel, when we come to the gospel of John, John is proclaiming how there's new life and new creation in Christ. The darkness that Genesis is talking about is darkness as far as light and darkness, as far as this light that helps our eyes to see, that gives us shape, that gives us colors and contours. No, the darkness and light that John's talking about is the darkness and the light of sin and grace. Sin and grace. And that's why John said this. He said, all things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that good news? That in the same way God spoke light into existence in Genesis, now in Christ he's speeding light to the darkness of our sadness, of our brokenness, of our sin, of our depravity. This is what our Jesus does. So I hope you marvel with me as we look at the beginning of your Bible, as we look at the beginning of John's gospel, 
But then we turn to the end of John's gospel because what we're going to see is that this theological truth, this powerful declaration of who Jesus is as creator and sustainer of all things, finds its home in someone who's doubting what they're hearing. Let's turn to the gospel of John chapter 20 and revisit the story of doubting Thomas. You're going to see two bookends in the gospel of John. One made as a declaration, one made as a personal confession. One made from the vantage point of heaven, the other made from the vantage point of a doubting disciple. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 24. Many of us are familiar with Thomas and familiar with the name given to Thomas, that he is known forever, I think tragically, as Doubting Thomas. What you're going to see is Doubting Thomas becomes Declaring Thomas. And he makes one of the most succinct declarations of the divinity of Christ in all your Bible. Let's read. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, listen, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand Into his side, Thomas says, I'll never believe. Perhaps there's some of us that have been there. Perhaps there's some of us that are there right now. Verse 26 says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hand, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Listen, this word to Thomas might be a word to us as well. Jesus said to him, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered Jesus. What does he say? My Lord, my Lord, and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. The Gospel of John says Jesus is the creator of everything, everywhere, at all times. If you ponder this, this is after Jesus' crucifixion. He has been resurrected, not only for his good, but for the good and the salvation of all who trust in him. Listen, church, think of it this way. Jesus created the wood that he would one day be crucified on. Jesus created the nails, the the metal for the nails that would one day pierce his hand and his feet. Jesus created the thorns that would one day be pressed upon his brow. Jesus created the tongues that would one day shout, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus created the people that would one day follow him and then deny him and then run from him and then be ashamed of him. Jesus created all of these things, and he knew that people would mock him. He knew he would be betrayed. He knew, as he said, he would be handed over to sinful man. And why did he do it, church? Why did he do it? To take doubting, disbelieving skeptics lost in their darkness and to shine his light so that they would realize who God really is. This comes alive in Thomas's heart, and he makes a proclamation that I hope we are able to make as well. 
Jesus, you're my Lord and my God. What does this mean for us? Doubting Thomas became declaring Thomas. Doubting Thomas started worshiping Jesus as God. If we worship Jesus as God, this is a very, very important truth. That means we can't worship money as our God anymore. It means we can't worship comfort, entertainment, pleasure, and lust as our God anymore. We will no longer give it our heart. We will no longer give it our allegiance. It's not our Lord. It's not our master. And it's not who and what we worship. I hope this morning all of us can make the declaration that Thomas does. Jesus was in the beginning with God. Jesus is God. And Jesus wants to be the God of our lives and our hearts and our homes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. I thank you for the opportunity to teach this masterful book, Lord. But I'm, I'm not interested in information. I'm definitely not interested in man-made religion. I'm definitely not interested with uh, just offering social services, Lord. No, if this is true, this changes everything. If this is true, if Jesus is in fact the center of history, the center of the Bible, the agent God used to create the world, the only way to heaven, the only way to be reconciled to God, then this changes everything. We can no longer just have him as a good person, as a good example, as a good thought or good feeling. No, he needs to be Lord because that's what he is. He needs to be God because that's who he's always been. So, Father, we ask for your grace to lead us in repentance as we turn from the idols of our culture and the idols of our hearts. Church, in a spirit of grace and prayer, I'm going to invite you to please rise. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's rise to our feet, church. And as we rise and as we prepare our hearts to respond in worship, how is the Lord leading you to turn from sin, to turn from counterfeit saviors and counterfeit gods, and to return to the one true God of creation, the one true God revealed in Scripture, the one true God, Jesus Christ, who can save you from your sin and save you from eternal hell. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss this chance. Open your heart tonight, today, and believe. Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Would you trust him with your sin? Would you turn to him for his grace? And would you follow him as your Lord and as your God? If you need a prayer to pray, just simply pray this with us. Jesus, I am a sinner. I often doubt you. Forgive me of my sin. And help me to believe. Fill me with your spirit. I want to worship you as my Lord and my God. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. It's very important once again. The Lord's working in your heart. Doing something fresh and new and exciting. you got to tell somebody.
You can profess in the baptismal, through baptism. You can come forward and tell one of our prayer counselors or one of our pastors. But take home your Bible. Study it and then let everybody know what God is doing in and through your life in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful name it is. Amen? Let's respond and worship.